Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it is time for another classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode is called How Hand-Drawn Animation Works, and it originally published on October 17th, 2012. And I'm a huge fan of animation. I love animation. I think when it's done well, it can be an incredible art form. Uh, one of my favorite films of the recent past is Into the Spider-Verse, a, a truly gorgeous animated movie, although not necessarily talking just about hand-drawn animation in that respect. But I thought it would be good to look back on this and kind of get a, an appreciation on how this stuff works. So let's listen in as Chris and I go down the path to understanding hand-drawn animation. Today we wanted to talk about the traditional hand-drawn animation process. What goes into it? Why does it work? And how has it changed over the years? Uh, and we were specifically focusing on hand-drawn animation because I think we may have, I know we've talked about computer animation in previous podcasts. I don't think we've done a full episode on it. But, uh, but the two disciplines are different enough where I think it warrants two different podcasts. Yeah, the um, I have done some research on it just by accident, just because I was interested in a topic from time to time, and I I started thinking about it the other day when I saw something and suggested it. Um, it's uh, it's very different in quite a few ways from from computer animation, and uh, Jonathan and I like to talk about uh, how old styles of tech have affected us and uh, the kinds of things that people used to do. Um, you know, there are some very famous studios that have, have gone computer only these days, but um, some of the very same studios were pioneers in some of the amazing tech that went into making a, uh, a piece of hand-drawn animation look very realistic. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, you know, it would be really fun to kind of touch on that. Um, which is uh, which is why I think we uh, decided to go ahead and, and make an episode of it. We should probably already uh, attach this into our uh, movie making tech series of stuff, just because we haven't done one in a while, and then yeah. now, now we can say we have. Yeah, I think it's been I think it's been like a year. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, that, that that's fine with me. This belongs in our movie <laughs> magic technology well, series. It really does. It's just that I wasn't thinking of it that way. So before. Uh, the, the, before we get into the actual process of making a hand-drawn animated uh, project, whether it's tele for television or for film or whatever, um, we should kind of explain the whole concept behind animation. Uh, it's The idea is that it's an illusion, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, an illusion of movement. And uh, this is because the way our, our brains and our eyes work, we have this uh, this sort of... It's, it's almost like a visual memory in a way, and we're able to fill in enough information where if you have a sequence of images of an object that appears to uh, move because it has a different um, orientation or uh, you've slightly changed the location of the object from one page of of a, like a pad of paper to another, and then you move those at a fast enough clip, it gives the illusion that, that that's actually an object that's 
physically moving through a space. Yeah, persistence of vision. Yes, you might call it. Yes, in fact, that's its name. That's and that is why a good reason to call it that. And so, I mean, anyone who has played with a little notepad or post-it notes or whatever, and have created their own little versions of this, knows that you know you you get a uh, you you create. This illusion of movement, you move the figures, you, you draw the next figure a little bit uh, further away from the first one, mm-hmm. or you give it some other form of motion. Uh, and when you flip the book, then it looks like something's happening. I used to do this all the time with post-it notes. I went through so many packs of post-it notes drawing my own little cartoons, which almost always ended in violent mayhem. They usually began that innocently enough. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be like, okay, and now he's jumping over a hurdle, and now he's opening up a door, and now he's hit in the head with an axe, and now he's running away from a monster, and yeah, things fell apart pretty quickly for me. If you're, uh, if you've ever read the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, where Calvin is, uh, you know, coming up with these scenarios. And now, look, the giant tanker truck full of acid is coming toward it. And a uh, meteor from space, how can they avoid this? And this is the image I'm seeing of Jonathan doing this. Yeah, it wasn't pretty. So how do you take that and you transfer it over into making an animated show or film? Well, it's been done for centuries now, really, in a way. In a way. But the the process that kind of defines the way modern animation worked throughout the 20th century Mm -hmm. was really defined by Earl Hurd. And Earl Hurd actually patented the cell animation process. And we call it cell animation. Uh, The original material that people drew the the drawings of figures or whatever was being animated within a scene, uh, they would draw draw that on celluloid. Uh, Eventually... The industry made a transition from celluloid to cellulose acetate. Uh, part of that was because celluloid is, um, yeah, it, <laughs> extremely it, flammable. Very flammable. It's both flammable and inflammable. Ooh. And also, it uh, it could be prone to spontaneous decomposition. So you couldn't store it. Indefinitely. Have you seen those stack of drawings? They were right. See that puddle of goo over there? Yeah. Yeah, that's Snow White. Um, yeah, they, they, they would, they would. That seems problematic. Yeah. So you couldn't, you know, you couldn't archive this stuff, which in the early days of the industry wasn't a big concern. You know, the, the concern was to create this, this product and then have it shown usually in a movie theater in the early days. Yeah. You know, this is, this is before television. So this was something where you would go to a, a, like a, a, a theater and see it projected on a screen. But it was, you, people weren't too concerned about storing stuff for, for pros, uh, posterity, not prosperity. They <laughs> wanted prosperity. Posterity yes. they weren't so concerned about. Um, but yeah, so, so it wasn't a big deal. But then the move to cellulose acetate, which is essentially kind of plastic, uh, helped take that, that problem out of the picture, so to speak. Yeah, the the reason that uh, now this this material um, the celluloid was was clear. Yes, uh, basically a clear sheet of plastic, if yeah. you will, just just for the sake of uh, the image in your head. Right. Actually, most of you have probably seen somebody working on cells for animation. It's you know it, it, we sort of know what this looks like. Yeah, uh, we haven't gotten so far out from that realm that it's foreign to us. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. 
but this is this was a big improvement because before this, uh, there were some very early animation, uh, you know, moving pictures that were made with drawings on paper, right? And that is so much more time consuming yeah. because it just as you know, um, there are several frames of film that pass each second. Twenty four is the standard. Yes. I couldn't remember. I was going, 24. 24. It's 24 frames per second as standard for film, 30 for television. I was thinking, don't uh, say 24. 30 for television if you're in the United States. <laughs> I have to, you have to make these qualifiers because other, other countries have different standards. Yeah. So, so uh, imagine, if you will, that you are one of the animators and you have to draw 24 complete drawings for each second of film, yeah. this is very time-consuming. Where using the the cell method allows you allows the animator to make a subtle change to the original drawing, and and just change make those subtle changes. And you can see it because um, again, if you watch a video of somebody making an animation with cells, they are able to overlay them on, t- on top of one another, and they can make those subtle adjustments seeing where the differences are between the two drawings, which you, you won't be able to do as well with paper, because it's well, op- opaque. You. Especially if you're using, yeah, especially if you're using paper, it's like, translucent if there's a background image yes. that's involved, with paper, you have to draw the whole thing each time. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. So you're drawing that whole background because, you know, again, your paper's not transparent. So you're drawing the whole background plus you're drawing whatever's in the foreground that's, ha- that's animated. And then the next frame, you have to draw it all over again. Whereas with cells, what you could do is you could have a pre-generated background image mm-hmm. that is laid down uh, in a frame. And then you could overlay these cells on top of it one at a time. And because the cell itself is clear anywhere that you have not drawn, you could see the background. And then you take that cell out, you put another cell in, you take another picture, which represents a frame of the uh, the film. You know, when you think about it, film really is animation. Yes. Even live action film is technically animation because you're talking about looking at a series of photographs that are played at such a speed as to create the illusion of movement. Yes. Uh, now, granted, this is we're talking about physical film here because once we get into digital, there's different things to, you know, consider but in the old film days that's that's really what we're talking about so mm-hmm. with animation each of those frames is essentially a photograph you're using a camera to photograph this drawing and with the cells like i said you take one cell out you put another cell in the background remains static uh then you have a character that is appearing or object or whatever that mm-hmm. is appearing to move on top of this background if it's a a, a movement that is re- you know, easily repeatable. You don't even have to draw more than the number of cells it takes to complete one cycle of that action. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you want to picture a, you've drawn a cartoon kangaroo, and the kangaroo is just jumping straight up and down five times. Well, you don't have to draw enough cells to do that five times. You draw it so it does one full cycle, one jump from start to finish, and then you. You could photograph that sequence five times using the, that same set of cells. So, in other words, you've just cut down on the amount of work you would have to do if this were all done on paper. Yes, and that's one of the important points too that uh, that so many animators have used in the past. Um, uh, the uh, the illusion of movement. You've got your kangaroo hopping up and down. Now, uh, if the background stays static, 
um, then it looks like the kangaroo is hopping up and down in place. Right. Um, this technique that Jonathan was just saying, um, ha- or was just talking about, uh, is often used uh, to create the illusion of movement across a uh, linear surface from point A to point B. Right. Let's say the uh, the characters are walking down a street in the city. Mm-hmm. Man, I remember those old uh, Marvel Comics heroes animations from the 60s and all the buildings. If if you watch a lot of these shows, um, Hanna-Barbera did this kind of thing too all the time uh, where you're moving down the urban landscape and they've you've got your drawings of the city and after a while the, bu- the buildings begin to look the same which is because uh, underneath what the, the characters are doing, the same images of the city, you know, once they've gotten uh, you know, let's say uh, 24 for each frame, they probably had, uh, you know, a certain number of those. And once they got to the end of that, then they started over at the beginning and yeah, so, loops and loops and loops. So if you think of, if you think of like a cell, a cell is generally the size of whatever the, the whole frame of that image is. Right. Right. So, mm-hmm. so one cell, uh, has the character or object or whatever, or characters or objects or mm-hmm. mix of whatever, uh, it has those in the center or, well, it has those on the on the center. It doesn't really matter. It has it on the cell. Uh, the rest of the cell is clear. That's what's showing you the background. Generally, the backgrounds are much wider than the frame, and sometimes taller as well than the frame that you are looking at. Yeah. So, when you take that picture and you remove the cell, so you can put the next cell indicating the next uh, movement of that character, you would also adjust the position of the background. So that you would have that illusion of a character walking forward. So let's say the character's staying in the center of the frame, and the animation is the character is making a walking motion. Then what you would do is between the different shots, you would move the background horizontally so that it would look like the character's making progress. Well... Eventually, you're going to run out of background. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you'll have to switch to a different background, or you have to reuse one, which is what Chris was talking about. You'll also notice in a lot of those old animations, uh, characters have very limited movement. Sometimes it looks like a static character who's just kind of bouncing up and down a little bit as the background is moving. Yeah. And again, that was a way of saving money by drawing fewer cells. You draw a character on a cell, and you're using that same static image of the character. You're just repositioning the cell slightly and, and adjusting the camera's frame so that uh, the, char- the character appears to be moving up and down as if they are walking. But, in fact, you're just using the same picture over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty- get to the clutch cargo days where you replace the cartoon character's mouth with a human mouth and generate a whole generation of nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm pretty sure, though, that this this method is exactly why He-Man always appeared to be moonwalking everywhere he went. Right. Yeah. The the mat- matching the uh, the the background movement with the animated uh, character movement is an art form of its in a, of itself. And if you don't do it carefully, then you get this weird glidy motion where the character either seems to be. Uh, walking too quickly but not making enough progress, or walking slowly but moving really fast. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's an, it's a form of art really to get that just right. We're kind of getting a little too far into this though. I wanted to talk kind of about the whole process of building an animated feature. Okay, um, but before I jump into it, one other thing I need to say is that 
this traditional form of animation we're talking about where you're drawing pictures on cells, uh, it takes up a lot of space. Yes, it does. The equipment takes up a lot of space because you usually have to have a, a a table on which you are photographing all this stuff. And you're not using like a, a, a hand camera. No, this is the professional huge camera. And mm-hmm. generally speaking, uh, this kind of helps cut down on the amount of materials you need. But generally speaking for film, uh, most animation is done where they call it animating on twos, which means they take two pictures per uh, position, mm-hmm. uh, which means that while the playback is 24 frames per second, the positions are more like 12 frames per second. Yeah. So uh, that way you've just cut the number of cells you need to create in half. Also, the number of times you need to adjust the background, you've cut that in half, uh, which makes a big difference. Now, for things that are like action that's moving really, really quickly where you want it really smooth, you might be animating on ones, which means every single time you take a picture, you have to change it, whatever, you know, either the background or the foreground or both between each picture. Mm-hmm. So you've just added twice as much work. You know, sometimes even more than twice as much because you think about all the departments that are involved in this. But uh, it it creates a lot more work that way. It also means you have to have storage space for all this stuff. Yeah. Because cells take up room. Uh, backgrounds take up room. The equipment takes up room. And film itself takes up room. So, you know, you talk about film footage. Mm-hmm. Well, that really does that really does refer back to how many feet of film you've shot, mm-hmm. right? Footage, I mean, we think about, oh, yeah, I got some great footage, but you don't think of what that really means. Well, in the film days, that actually meant how many feet of film you had exposed, how many you had you had shot of whatever scene. If you want to know how much film animated an animated picture takes, about 16 frames is a foot. Okay. One second of film is 24 frames. Right. So one second of film is a foot and a half. Okay. That's about half a meter. Most cartoons are longer than a second. (laughs) True. So you have lots and lots of film that you're dealing with. All right. So that's that's the space issue. And we'll talk more about how we've kind of worked around that. and move beyond the cell-based animation these days while still staying hand-drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you wanted to make an animated film, uh, he, the way you would generally approach this is you'd come up with an idea for a story. Okay. That's the best thing. To, that's the best way to start, in my opinion. I just drew some stuff bouncing around. Is that all right? Yeah, you could do that. It's not terribly, you know, interesting. Um Beyond maybe a certain group of friends who are amused by anything, you, my friends know who they are. Um, oh. Hey, they like my stuff. So <laughs> anyway, so you you create a story, and then you think of how you want to visualize the story. This is where you create a storyboard. Now, a storyboard is kind of like a comic strip or a graphic novel. It tells the story in a series of frames. And uh, it all depends on how detailed you want to get. Sometimes you just show a uh, you know a frame, and then you might make a note about what is happening as far as the action goes. Because of course, a frame is a still image. We don't see movement in a frame. Right. 
we can see the implication, like the, the, it's implying movement perhaps, but it doesn't actually move. So you might say, you know, uh, like uh, have a have a picture of a character who is holding an American football and is uh, that's for my friends in in places other than the United States, but holding an American football as if they're going to throw a pass. So their arm is cocked back. They're holding the football. And then you might draw some arrows showing that this is the forward motion that the character is going to throw the ball. And then the next shot might be the football in the air. And then the next shot might be a character with arms wide open trying to catch this ball. And the next shot might be the ball passing right between the character's arms. That would be several frames within a storyboard. You fill out the entire story this way. So you end up with a huge, depending upon the length of your project, Mm -hmm. a huge comic strip that is your story. And it's told in this visual format. Um once you've got an idea of what it looks like and, and the mood you're trying to get across in various parts of the story, the next step, uh, and, and not every project takes these steps in this exact order, but in general, the next step would be you get your cast together and you record all the voice work. Mm-hmm. So it all depends on the project of how you do this. Some some. Uh, Animation companies, what they would do is they would bring in the voice actors uh, individually, and they would just deliver their lines. And they might deliver a line five, six different ways so that the director has the choice of which line to use, which which delivery to use, right? Yeah. So the line might be, uh, Chris, I need you to say this line, don't go in there. Don't go in there. No, I need you to say it like you're scared. Don't go in there. No, I need you to say it like there's a big surprise and you just you can't let this person see the surprise yet. Don't go in there. See, so then that's exactly what the voice actors would be doing. <laughs> and yeah. it, it sounds ridiculous, but that's truly the way a lot of these studios work. Yeah. Unless they're casting Robin Williams, in which case they give him a microphone, turn and it just, on, yeah, and just, just, like, just go. go get a sandwich. Yeah. Like, like here's here's your stuff. here's your cue line. Here's the line you need to give so that the next actor's line makes sense. Go at it. Yeah, the, the, the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor for Aladdin is phenomenal. And, I yeah. mean, the stuff that made it in was great. Yeah. The stuff that made it on, that was cut was pretty amazing, too. Anyway. Uh, Just an aside. There. That's, that's one way of doing it. Another way, sometimes studios will bring in groups of actors, and they will all have headphones on. They'll be uh, in the studio, and they will, they will read out lines together, and you will actually have... Actors acting off of one another's delivery. Yeah, like a group read. Which which is great. And usually there's also a group read before they even go into the recording process so mm-hmm. that they can kind of get that feel. This is particularly true for television animation where they'll get a, a table read so that the actors kind of know where they need to go with their performance before they go into the studio. Mm-hmm. But if they're together, it makes it easier, at least, and I have done this, it, for me it makes it easier for me to act when I have someone to act opposite of. That way we can we can judge how to deliver the next line based upon what the other person has said. Yeah. It's a lot more challenging when you're doing it in a void and you just hope that the way you deliver a line matches up with the way they delivered their line. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it, both approaches are used. And there are some phenomenal animated works out there where every single actor never, ever encountered any of the other actors. Which to me blows my mind. <laughs> um, so they record this thing, and then you have what is called a scratch track. 
This is an audio track of the film that includes all the vocal acting, including songs, if there are any vocal songs that the characters are performing in there, mm -hmm. and usually some temp music tracks, because often the music for a film is not finished uh, until you've got at least something to look at so that the composer can kind of match the mood of the music to whatever's on screen. Yeah. But there'll be temp music tracks to kind of give the, 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 you know, music tracks that are selected that give sort of a similar feel to what the filmmakers are going for so that the animators have something to work off of. Mm -hmm. So you've got the scratch track done. Uh, by the way, this was not how it was always done. Prior to the 1930s, animators would create an animated film and then record the sound, matching, trying to match the sound to what was already created in film format. Yeah. So they were going the opposite way. They would create the film and then they would try and essentially do Foley yeah. for whatever the animated film was. But, but eventually it moved to the other way. Yeah. If I were going to do this, it would probably be more like that. Right. That would be... Because I'm not... An animator. Yeah, so because what the animators are doing is they take that 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 soundtrack, that scratch track, and they start to uh, create the animation. Now, sometimes there's another step. In fact, very often there's another step called an animatic or a pencil test. This is a very primitive version of the film, so it goes beyond the storyboard uh, model where you've got some some movement usually involved in the animatics. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's if you think, you know, the most primitive form of the animatic could just be a storyboard set to the scratch track. And this, again, is a reference for the animators to look at when they start to really generate the, um, the, the, the visuals for the film. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, you can start to divide up the labor, which is very useful because it means that you can have different departments working on various stuff all at the same time, and people can specialize in very uh, particular tasks, and it makes the whole project move much more quickly. It's like an it's it's an assembly line approach. Yeah. So. And it's it's kind of key to how they started making animated motion pictures. I'm glad you said the word key, but I'll get to that. So that you might have a background department. Mm -hmm. uh, this the department's purpose is just to create the backgrounds that you're going to see in this animated feature. We'll be back here if you need us. Yeah. So they actually are. That's that's their job is to create the backgrounds, and these backgrounds might, like I said, be larger than the frame is when you're taking pictures with your film camera, uh, so that you can move the background around in relation to what's going on in the foreground, so that you can have that illusion of characters moving around a scene, and you aren't you aren't restricted to just what you can see in any given frame. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they that department starts to work on the backgrounds. You've got the drawing department, and what they usually do is start on paper, and they'll start drawing out the characters. They'll they'll start creating character concepts. This is the time where uh, they really start to refine the way characters look and move, and not just the characters themselves, but anything the character happens to have on him or her. So, for example, if you've drawn a space marine character who's got a big gun and big clunky armor, you would want to draw a lot of different poses for this character to kind of define, like, this is how this character moves. Like, the, the, the armor restricts movement, so things need to be really angular, and there can't be a lot of flexibility here. And uh, when the character expresses surprise, um, uh, his eyebrows actually go down, not up, and that sort of stuff. And these are things that really define acting choices uh, in the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a weird. Another weird thing is that 
a performance in an animated film is defined by not just the person who's recorded the voice, but the person who has drawn that character. And so you've got an acting performance coming from at least two different people, mm-hmm. and usually more than two different people. Yeah, there there are times in, uh, for example, I, I know this is not a hand-drawn animation. There are times in Monsters, Inc., when I'm watching Mike Wazowski and I'm seeing Billy Crystal in my head. Yeah. Because they've captured some of the same facial and that, that's, expression. That's not that unusual either. Often often people will uh, film or videotape the cast recording sessions in order to get a look at how the actors uh, you know some of the some of the facial expressions they use or the quirks they have, and they'll even incorporate that into the character designs, uh, which is that's always fun. When you see a, an animated character make a movement that is something you associate with a physical human being, that's always a fun moment. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's uh, another benefit of doing it the other way around. Not only do you have to not match up the voice to the animation, but you actually get to, to breathe a little life into the animation, too, and make it more appealing. Right. We've got more to say about how animation works, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So the next step is once you've got the drawings on paper, you start to trace it onto cells. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, technically, it's on the back of the cells that you're tracing uh, this stuff on. And after after you've drawn the, the line drawing... You know, after you've uh, inked it, that's mm-hmm. the inking phase, it's time to go to paint where you have to use the very specific colors you have designated for that character. Um, there are, you know, there are guides for every single animated feature or television show about what color belongs to which character. And, you know, it, it's a very specific thing because when it's off, it's noticeably off. Yeah. Particularly if it's off within a single uh, episode of a show or a single film. But if it's something that's between episodes, even then it can be noticeable. You'd be like, Homer Simpson's pants aren't the right color of blue. <laughs> and it's true. Uh, you know, you can, in fact, there are companies that have had problems where the paints they were using no longer existed because the company that produced them was gone and they had to try and figure out how to recreate that exact color. <laughs> or, or there are times, too, when... Um you know, especially for TV shows where they're, they're creating many episodes of a show where, uh, the producing studio farms the animation work out to other studios. Right. So you'll see differences sometimes in colors when one studio does it versus another. Yeah. And that's, that's, and that a, can be distracting for longtime fans. That's another issue I was going to mention is that, so you, you get to this point where you're drawing the cells and you're painting the cells, you're inking and painting the cells. Uh, everything's being done on the back of the cell. That mm-hmm. also hides the brush strokes. So that way, when you turn the cell over, you've got this beautiful color image of a character or an object or whatever, uh, but you don't see the individual brush strokes or anything because yeah. that's on the back of the cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, then once those cells are done, if if you were to do all the animation yourself, you would produce all the cells you needed to complete the animation for the various scenes you're doing. And sometimes that means that you're going to be using some of the same cells again and again like if there are a lot of scenes of a character walking down the road, then you may have a certain sequence of cells that you use several times. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you don't want to rely on it too much, of course, because otherwise it just looks like it's the same thing through the whole picture. Yeah. But um, uh, you would put those cells individually on top of the respective backgrounds, take a photo, make the adjustments, take the next photo, make adjustments, take the next photo until you were done. And, you know, you do that all the way through and you're matching it up to that scratch track. You actually have to make sure that the animation matches up with the soundtrack for the film. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they the final soundtrack comes through with the music and effects and everything. And uh, you master out the film, and then you've got your finished animated project. However, like Chris was saying, a lot of television shows in particular farm out animation to other countries, particularly mm-hmm. Korea. Korea is, uh, is, is like a, a known factor in animation. Yeah. Um, and shows like The Simpsons and Futurama, they use these studios in Korea to complete the animation. What usually happens is that uh, the team back in the United States will create what are called key frames. Mm-hmm. Key frames are showing very specific points in the animation that need to happen. Yeah. And you have these segments between the key frames that are left unfinished. They need to be filled in, and that's called in-betweening. Yeah. Which makes sense. You're, you're creating this, the action that exists in between the key frames. So if you think about it, back when I was talking about the storyboard with the whole football uh, example, you would probably have more key frames than just the three or four panels I had talked about. But that would essentially be the same sort of thing, saying this is your starting point. This is your ending point. We need to have the pathway connecting these two. It needs to be this many frames long. So that's that kind of dictates how fast the action takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that is all done, the, the foreign, uh, for us anyway, the foreign studio sends the footage back and you can incorporate it into your show. Right. Now, often you have to do a lot of work to match up things like uh, vocal work in particular with um, with the animation that's sent back because you're talking about a language barrier. Uh, often you're talking about people who may not get the gist of a joke because of either linguistic or cultural differences. Yeah. So something mm-hmm. that makes sense and is funny to us may not be funny to another culture because they don't have the same cultural background right? or same linguistic background. So there, there are adjustments that need to be made at that point. But the idea is that the bulk of the work is done, which ends up being less expensive for the studio here in the United States because, frankly – it the the people the animators who are working in Korea are doing it at a much lower cost than it would be to produce it all here. Yeah. So that's the general approach. Now we have a couple of special things we wanted to talk about. Uh, one of those being something that was invented uh, many decades ago by uh, Disney animators mm-hmm. and Disney engineers. Yeah. This may. Uh I'm not certain that uh, that we're talking about the same thing. I'm Although, thinking the, yes, the, the multiplane yes, camera. Yes, that's exactly. I'm doing the multiplane huh. camera gesture so that Chris would know. Yes, that's the, the international symbol for the multiplane camera. Which is putting putting your horizontal hand in five different levels. This, um, this is a little different in technique. Um, and, and it's... it's 
similar in other ways. Now, um, this is something that the Disney Studios, there were, there were several people who worked on this. Um, mm-hmm. Disney himself did some work on it. And, uh, the, the semi-famous, uh, Ooh Byworks also worked on it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Basically, they had noticed there's an there's an awesome film of Disney himself uh, introducing this and yeah. talking about it. I I assume that it looks like it came from the Disneyland uh, TV show yeah. that was out in the uh, the fifties and sixties. I would imagine it's that, or or so, and I'm sure it was used in something like the Wonderful World of Dis- of Disney. Yeah, you know, it's it's he did a whole series of uh, films where he talked very. You know, just just matter of matter of fact approach about yeah. how they do what they do and how they make Disney magic, which in my mind made it all the more magical because you saw the amount of thought that went into producing the stuff they made. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it been in about five minutes. I'd actually read about this in a, a biography of Walt Disney, but uh, seeing it actually explained step by step and how they they make it work. Um, now, when you you show a traditional two D animation. Uh, cell being shot, a photo being taken of the cell against the background. Basically, there's uh, a frame that holds the, the cell in place over the background. They clamp it down so it's not going to wiggle right. while they take the shot. And the camera is mounted above the table. So it is taking a picture of what is inside the frame, the physical frame on top of the table. Right. So you, you basically have a shutter shutter release control. You, you mount the, you put the cell in place, lock it down in place, uh, you know, back out so you don't take a picture of the back of your head. Right. <laughs> and, get, get some weird reflection in there or something. Yeah, and, and, and do the shutter release, you know, with your, with your thumb, you know, or f- finger, and, uh, you know, take your two shots if you're doing, uh, you know, Animation twos. On twos, yeah. Uh, okay, so you got it. But, uh, what, what Disney was explaining in this video was, uh, basically the problem of perspective. Yes. Uh, how certain things, appear larger when they are closer to you or smaller farther away. Now you have um, uh, something like uh, a barn, and that's specifically from this. With, uh, a, with a moon hanging in the sky in yeah. the background. Yeah, now uh, you, as you get closer, as you walk toward the barn, it's going to start to appear larger. But in, in traditional animation, you know, 2D animation, you start to basically if you everything build it, gets larger. everything gets larger because you're basically zooming in on yeah you're as, the if, scene if you if you're thinking of it in purely physical terms yeah you are either moving the camera closer or focusing the lens so that the focal length is different but you're you're yeah. essentially moving the camera closer to the frame or you're moving the frame closer to the camera in the, either case you're decreasing the distance between camera and frame in order to create the illusion that you are zooming into a physical landscape. So in a real-world situation, it'd be like a cameraman holding a camera and walking toward this barn that's on a hill and the moon is hanging behind it. And in that situation, the barn would gradually start to appear larger in the frame because you're getting closer, but the moon would not start to get larger because the moon is so much further away you would have to go a really long way before that moon started looking like it was getting bigger. But in animation, because it's a static background and it's drawn on a two-dimensional piece of paper or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, when the camera gets closer, everything gets bigger. Because you cannot selectively say, hey, static image that it was drawn once that we're going to use over and over again, make sure the moon doesn't get bigger when I get closer to it. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. We got a little bit more animating to do, folks, but before we can do that, 
We're going to take another quick break. So the the way that that the uh, Disney Studios uh, decided to work around this was to essentially, and it's not exactly like this, but if you will, essentially use a stack of layered cells mm-hmm. um, mounted, you know, one over the other, over the other, over the other, so that the table underneath them still has the bottom and the camera is still above them, but. Uh, what this enables the uh, the animators to do is to adjust. Uh, so the moon, in this case, would be on the very bottom. Yeah, it's the furthest thing away. It, it's not going to move. Right. But there might be a tree between you and the barn. So as the camera gets closer to the layer with the tree on it, it eventually goes out of sight. Because at this point, you uh, there the illusion is that you have passed the tree. Right. But um, the barn is still ahead of you. And it still appears to be getting larger, but more slowly than the bush on another layer in right. between. And then you eventually don't see the bush anymore because you have theoretically passed it. And uh, as you get closer to the barn, it's still appearing larger, but the moon still appears to be the roughly the same distance away. So as the uh, the camera gets you know layer by layer closer and closer down the stack of layers, um, you know you do have that illusion that you are that the perspective is working the way it would in real life. Right um, now, it is not exactly the same as as cell animation. In this case, they're actually using oil paint on glass. Yes. Don't drop that layer I worked on all day, Bill. <laughs> don't don't get your filthy smudgy hands off the layer I just built. So they for every shot. Now this this again, this is an expensive process because now they are drawing not just one frame at a time. They are drawing several layers that you may or may not get to reuse later. Um, but uh, they have to mount these in the the holders for each frame. So let's say you've got seven layers. Uh, well, the bottom one with the moon on it, that's going to stay the same. Yeah, it's just it'll be on a stationary table. Yeah, but you might have to animate. Uh, you might have to replace the ones on the first three more frequently, and then the four, and then the five. So you're you're for every shot, you're going to have to adjust the different layers. Uh, yeah. as needed. And so you've got you've got this device that has all these platforms that can hold each layer. So yes. and the platforms themselves are adjustable where you can move them closer to or further away from the camera. The camera remains stationary. You can also move them left to right or right. up or down, which right. is frankly genius so, in my yeah, opinion. So yeah, again, again you can create a much wider scene than can be seen on a a single shot of the camera. And remember, we're still doing this this approach where we take one picture, then you adjust. Take one picture, then you adjust. You could mm-hmm. theoretically do this live if you really wanted to, but it would look, it would probably be a chaotic mess. Mm-hmm. So um, instead, uh, let's say that you are uh, doing a panning shot through a forest. Mm-hmm. Well, the stuff that's closer to you is going to appear to move more dramatically than the stuff that is much further away. Yes. Well, that was the shot they used in the video you were talking about was uh, from Bambi, where yes. it was a panning shot through the forest. And and this effect was very impressive because you had different layers of the background moving at different speeds uh, relative to our perspective. Mm-hmm. And so it creates a much more realistic feeling than just a camera panning across a static painting. 
mm-hmm. which doesn't have any other layers to it. Um, and it really did add this level of immersion to those early animated films. Now, it was a very kind of uh, primitive form of 3D. Yeah. In a sense, because you're not you're not having any. It's it's giving the illusion of depth. It's not coming out at you, and also ultimately, it's the illusion of depth of a series of two dimensional paintings. Yes, right. So it's almost like, uh, I, and I've seen this with televisions that do 3D conversion, mm-hmm. 2D to 3D conversion. Yeah. The problem I have with 2D to 3D conversion is that it always gives the appearance of a bunch of cardboard cutouts that are at different depth levels. Yeah. So if you had if you took a photo with a 2D camera of a bunch of people uh, lined up so that they are like like there's one guy who's really close to fairly close to you, another person who's a little further back, another one a little further back, and another one at the very back of the picture, and you've adjusted the focus so that everyone's more or less in focus, mm-hmm. and you take the photo and then you convert it to 3D. Well, now it looks like a cardboard cutout of your friend is really close, and a cardboard cutout of your other friend is in the middle. It doesn't they're, they don't appear to be three dimensional objects. Right. Same thing is true with this multiplane camera approach. Is that the backgrounds all look like two-dimensional paintings because that's what they were, but that there were some that were closer to the camera than others. So it created a very interesting effect, and it was immersive, but it was not so immersive as a true three-dimensional background. Yeah, yeah. Um, nonetheless, I think it was a very clever way to to work around the limitations of 2D. And, uh, you know, in thinking about it just now, uh, I think in a way it inadvertently... Uh, forced the Ken Burns effect, because when you're when you're shooting documentaries as as he has, and he's showing still images, and they're you know they they're interviewing somebody, they're talking, and basically you're watching a a photo that was taken a hundred years ago. There's it's it's a, a, a static photo of a real person, mm-hmm. and it's what are you going to do? You're going to sit there and stare at the photo of Abraham Lincoln for two minutes while this guy is talking about him? No. you got to do something to make it more. I think it sort of set an expectation that when you're watching a video, it should be moving. Yeah. <laughs> and it should appear realistic. So um, I started thinking about it. I went, you know, I bet that's why we have the Ken Burns effect because, you know, we, we came in with that perspective of moving in to the photo or panning across a still photo. Um, and that's exactly actually what I was thinking when I, he was, when Disney was narrating this, this thing. It's like, well, you know, you can zoom in if you want to, and it sort of seems like you're getting closer, but it does, it's not as realistic as if you had this sense of perspective. Yeah. As we will create with the multiplane camera. So I just kind of thought about that. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about yeah. is another development that has dramatically changed the way hand-drawn animation works today. Uh-huh. And that is uh, using a digital platform to create hand-drawn animation. So it's yeah. not computer animation. You are not building computer models. You're still drawing stuff by hand. You're just doing it with a computer right. to assist you. And tip- typically, this is through the use of things like Wacom tablets, or mm-hmm. specifically Centrique tablets tend to be favored by a lot of the artists I know, mainly mm-hmm. because you can, uh, with the right tablet, you can actually still look down and see as you're drawing. That's a that's a that's something that I've, I've got a friend who does animation. Actually, I've got a couple of friends who do animation. My buddy Lucas Ryan was talking to me about this because I said, we're going to do an episode about hand-drawn animation. What would you suggest we talk about? And he says, well, you know, you're going to cover the whole history, and that's great, but I want you to talk about 
uh, what it's like for an animator today to use one of these digital tablets. And you talked about, you know, there's a disconnect. There are some tablets where it's like a giant touchpad, mm-hmm. right? And you've got a, a stylus that you use, a pen that you use, and you draw on the touchpad, and the touchpad itself doesn't display anything. You have to look at a screen. Right. He says... There's some people who they just can't get past that. They can't get past the fact that they are looking at a screen, but they're drawing, you know, on a on a surface that they are not looking at. Yeah, and that that's kind of understandable. I mean, someone who's just learning to touch type. Yeah, that's, I was gonna say it's pretty intimidating because you have to you have to really teach yourself the layout and everything. So there are a lot of tablets out there now where there's also a display built into the tablet itself. So you're drawing on the tablet. It's also being reflected on a display on a computer, but you can look down and see what you're doing. Yeah. So that way you can make these adjustments. Also, uh, you talked about the uh, the benefit of moving from a raster-based system to a vector-based system. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before where yeah. raster is all pixel-based, right? Yeah. Uh, well, vector is math based. Yeah, it's a uh, line art. Line art, which is yeah, and and the nice thing about vector graphics is that it's it's relatively easy to adjust lines after you draw them. Yeah. So you can reshape a line much more simply with a vector based drawing than you could with raster, where you would essentially have to erase what you did and draw it again. So there's some illustrators and animators out there who. They're just used to it. They'll be, they'll draw a line and say, no, that's, that curve's not right and erase it. And they'll draw a line and say, well, it's closer, but that's not what I want. And they'll erase it and they'll draw another line. But then with the vector based ones, you could draw a line and say, ooh, you know what? I just need to tweak this a little bit and it's going to be exactly what I need. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helps cut down on, on, uh, a lot of stop and start work. And also yeah. the inking and painting part is much more, uh, much simpler now. Yeah. You have a, a huge variety of colors you can choose from depending upon what sort of programs you're using. Uh, you don't have to worry about it not being consistent from one shot to the next because it's all digital. Mm-hmm. So that that code of color is going to remain the same no matter what. Yeah. Um, and you might even be able to use some effects in some software to create lighting effects that you don't have to necessarily do yourself. Yeah. So... It would know that, all right, if you're going to put a shadow of this intensity over this particular picture, it needs to adjust the color to look like that so that, you know, so that it's natural to the viewer. Yeah. So that's really changed the way illustrators and animators have created artwork. I know there are a lot of people who create web comics who exclusively use tablets now. For the longest time, they would do all their art on paper. And then they would scan the paper, and they would upload the art that way. Scott yeah. Kurtz used to do it that way. The guys yeah. at Penny Arcade used to do it that way. And then they all began to switch over using digital tablets. And almost every single one, I hear the animator or or the artist talking, uh, either on a blog or on a podcast or whatever, about how the initial transition period is incredibly painful and frustrating. Mm-hmm. And then after they get past the learning curve, they're like, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier because <laughs> it makes things so much easier. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's become sort of the new standard is using these the, this digital format to do hand-drawn in- animation. Mm-hmm. And we also have seen some combinations of hand-drawn animation paired with computer-generated backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I know Beauty and the Beast did that. 
the big ballroom sequence with yeah. the the dance and uh, Angela Lansbury singing and um, and stuff that had a computer generated background. Uh, so you know we we're seeing some marriage of computer generated animation and hand drawn animation uh, happening and. It's, it's been going on for a while. It's not like Beauty and the Beast was the first and only example. It's just right. one example. Right. Uh, so, you know, I'm sure we'll see more of that. I'm glad to say that there are plenty of artists and studios out there that still support hand-drawn animation because I think that there is something special to that. There's a feel hand-drawn animation has that's its own thing. And I like that. Yeah, it, it seems like, um, uh, well, at least in my opinion, it seems like there's a warmth to it. Yeah. Um, well, that you yeah. don't necessarily get. Yeah. There's an asterisk there. You, you can't, yeah. And there are companies, Sometimes I mean, you do. there are companies out there like Pixar that can make you sob like a little baby with some computer generated graphics. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, rotten. You, you can people. ask, you can ask my wife. There is not a Pixar movie that I see without me going, look at the, Fill in the blank here, yeah. like the water in Finding Nemo, or, or the hair. fur, the fur on Sully in Monsters Inc. It just absolutely blows my mind. The the uh, the story of the the balloons in Up, where they yeah. did the computer modeling to determine how balloons would actually behave. Yeah, it kind of made me think of the Amazing. the the engine that Weta built for um, the armies for Lord of the Rings. It's like let's why don't we take that technology and convert it for helium balloons. <laughs> It's essentially what they did. That's, um, uh, that's fascinating stuff. But there is there is a, a um, I agree with Jonathan. There is a, a a feeling that you get when watching hand drawn animation that is different than the feeling that you get when you're watching a computer. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't animation. mean better or no, worse. Uh, it's just different. It's just different. And and I, and you know, Lasseter of Pixar, mm-hmm. he would argue the same thing. He yeah. says, you know, it's we use at Pixar we use computer animation because that's the tool we use. But to us, the most important part of any film is the story. Yeah. And that ultimately, the tool you use is nowhere near as important as the story is. Yeah. So if your story is solid, then as long as you are good at using whatever tools you have, you should be able to tell that story effectively. Yeah. Now, that if those tools are hand-drawn animation, that's great. And if it's computer animation, that's great. There's mm-hmm. no, there's nothing wrong with either choice. You're going to get a different experience depending on which ones you use, but it doesn't mean that one experience is superior or inferior to the other. And that wraps up this classic episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I always enjoy going back and listening to these old shows and hearing Chris and his uh, wonderful delivery. I miss him and his puns. Uh, He's still doing quite well, by the way. He's just not with our company anymore. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this. If you have any suggestions for brand new episodes of Tech Stuff, you can reach out. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com, where you're going to find an archive of all of our past episodes, including these classics. You'll also find links to our social media presence, and you'll find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. We greatly appreciate it, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 